Welcome to Something to Eat and Something to Read for 2023, a podcast for people who love cooking and reading and reading about cooking by me, food writer Sophie Hansen, and Jermaine Lees, bibliotherapist and psychotherapist. Normally, our episodes involve us chatting about a particular book and the narrative and how food propels that forward. And then we uh, answer a listener letter with something to eat and something to read. But today we're going to do something a little bit different and just talk about the idea of summer reading, what we've been reading, and then we do have a summer listener letter. So Jermaine, hello, first of all, how's your holiday been? And I can't wait to hear what you have been reading and doing this last few weeks. Hi, Sophie. Happy New Year. I know it's sort of gone fast, but gone slow at the same time, which is nice. So there has been reading time. Yeah, I like the idea of us having an episode that kind of tackles summer reading because it can be quite contradictory. I've been, well, the more you think about it, the more, well, we'll uncover that more in our episode. But I was thinking it is nice doing an episode that reflects on summertime after our Christmas episode, which is all about the lead up and preparation. And I hope for everyone, this is also an episode that just creates a bit of stillness before we leap into the um, the full-blown new year, mm. back to work, school and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, how was your summer break actually, uh, before we get into the reading side? Uh, it was good. It, it's been fairly busy just driving around the countryside. We had a a bit of time at the beach, and then we had four days on a houseboat down on the Murray River, which surprised me by being one of the best holidays I think I've ever had because there was literally mm-hmm. nothing to do but read and eat and cook and talk and connect with the family and our friends. Um, it was a really special time. So I've actually come back feeling really ready for the year ahead, which I think is the sign of any good holiday. Um, how about you, Jermaine? Did you get away? We are actually having a little mini break at the end of the holidays this weekend heading away to the beach no otherwise we've been making the most of the city actually we've actually gone to some plays been to the opera wow a bit of culture these holidays and also time for reading but I do find I was just thinking when you talked about being on a houseboat you literally can't do anything else but relax Mm. and read and I had envisaged not doing anything much at home but reading but it's funny when you're at home you still get distracted by home things don't you there's still the need to go to Coles and get your food and all that kind of thing Mm. I was very conscious of making it a summer reading type of holiday and that made me think about how the term summer reading is just so widely used I mean it's everywhere in the uh, in the newspaper all over Instagram it's just a term that we've always used and I've never really thought about what it meant but and the fact that actually everyone is going to have a completely different definition of summer reading Mm. so what, what does summer reading mean for you to me it means daytime reading like time to read during the day, mm. you know, because like a lot of people in the throes of normal life, when I read, it's when you've gone to bed and you're having, you know, and then I read a page and I fall asleep. <laughs> so that idea of multiple idle hours, well, not idle because you're doing something, but multiple hours mm. in a day where you can just lie on a beach or in a chair or something and read, that's what summer reading is to me because don't do it that enough. And in fact, I've actually, one of my, not that I love the idea of resolutions, but one thing I want to do more this year is, I mean, I work from home and when I make some lunch or whatever, rather than just sort of having a look through my phone, just carve out 10 minutes here, 10 Mm. minutes to to, to read during the day because it does steal me so much and helps me so much with my writing. So yeah, to me, daytime, uh, summer reading is daytime reading, essentially. How about you? (laughs) It's interesting. So it's it's really not so much to do with the reading material, but to do with the time and place for you. For me, yeah, definitely. Because yeah, I mean, I, I also I read what I want. Like you know, I don't sort of save beach reads just to go to the beach. I'll read a good kind of mm. um, book I can gobble up any time. But it's more, I think, it's just finding the time to sit quietly with a book and not be distracted and like spend a good hour or two just reading at three o'clock in the afternoon I mean what luxury you know that to me that's a holiday but I think you might have quite a different take on summer reading is that right I think I now have so many different takes (laughs) on it but it made me the first time I really thought about it was I think yes before I started working at the School of Life years ago as their bibliotherapist 
I sort of thought of summer reading as the escapist pleasure reading that, yeah, the, I, I was going to say guilty pleasure, but I don't know if I ever felt guilty, but the books that you could just whiz through and page turners sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And then that first summer of working at the School of Life, I saw all these people who would come in and say they're looking for summer reads, but their summer reading was so, so different. There was nothing that linked their summer reading choices. So I remember I'd have someone who would say, or a bit like what you're saying about having all this time, so they would want to tackle the classics that Mm -hmm. they'd never tackled before or someone else who really wanted to find a series they could get into and read one after the other over summer. Or I remember this um, elderly lady who loved travel in her earlier years and was no longer able to travel. And so she was looking for a whole lot of books set in different countries. Um, So it's sort of an armchair travel summer. Like the mood of reading was just as different as the people I was seeing. But the only thing in common was actually kind of what you're saying is that there was this long stretch of time that they could prioritise their reading, I Mm. guess. Mm. At that time also, I think it was about that time, I came across this great New Yorker article about how summer reading was invented. I think she's a historian, academic. Her name's Donna Harrington Luker, and she wrote this book called Books for Idle Hours. And it was fascinating because it was all about how, yet again, uh, summer reading was this construct by publishing companies to sell more books, obviously. Also, the timing was interesting because it was the turn of the 19th century where urbanisation and industrialization uh, had happened and people were suddenly allowed to have holiday breaks from work. And then uh, she was saying, this is in America, ships and train made, you know, place travel more accessible for people as well. Mm. And so the newspaper started advertising, you know, summer activities and things you could do over the summer. And then the publishing industry jumped on that and kind of shaped this narrative around summer reading as this acceptable middle-class pleasure. (laughs) In this article, she writes about an editor of a newspaper in 1888 who wrote a piece called uh, Summer Novels. And he observed that as the temperature increases, young ladies begin to think on new gowns and pleasing fictions, both airy and frost-like, <laughs> which is actually very condescending as is fitting of the time, I guess. He believed that books published for this time of year to, were to be chatted about rather than read. And I thought that was really interesting, the idea of those books, like we do now, where a book suddenly... The word of mouth thing Mm. and everyone's talking about the same book and everyone's reading the same book at the same time and there's something very connecting. I think his suggestion was this is sort of anti-intellectual but actually it's it's so much more important that books create conversation and make people want to read more. Mm. Apparently also this is when books that or new storylines developed about like he She writes about books that unfold in the resort setting. They were episodic, plot-driven, making them easy to put down and pick up between festive interruptions. They were often romances. And by the end of the novel, which would be the end of summer in the novel as well, societal rules have returned so people would, all the passions and everything would die down to get back to work, (laughs) which I also thought was an interesting kind of subliminal way to get people back into a responsible mindset or something, (laughs) which just made me realise like we are so influenced by forces so outside our control. Yes. But what what do you think about all that? Oh, well, I I mean, I I think that's fascinating and I love this idea of the development of the idea of of summer reading. And you mentioned before that idea of like a guilty pleasure, that, that that's the kind of this is the time of year that we indulge in those. And I think I've said this to you before, I have a real problem with the idea of, or the expression guilty pleasure. You know, I feel like if, as long as you're not harming yourself Mm. or others, how is uh, taking pleasure from something ever bad? (laughs) You know, and books particularly, like I never feel guilty about reading, you know, inverted commas, like a trashy book or, you know, I've, I'm on the record for loving Julie Cooper's books and rereading them many times and I don't Mm. feel guilty about that because they're fun, you know. So I think, you know, and so many of us have been in reading ruts, you know, probably COVID-induced or whatever and it's been hard to get out of those. And so if you come across a book that you just rip through in a day and gobble up like a box of chocolates, what on earth is there to feel guilty about that? 
so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really over this idea that we need to tick off a kind of a list of literary greats to consider ourselves good readers, you know, and I was actually nodding Definitely. along really enthusiastically. I was listening to, I know you like it too, that podcast you're booked by Daisy Buchanan. She's the author of yep. Insatiable, which is another really fun book. It's a bit more adult. But anyway, she was interviewing um, British author Sarah Manning, who's also a book reviewer, about reading resolutions for the new year. It's a great episode. I'll pop it in the show notes. But Sarah has a lot of really strong opinions about people forcing themselves to read books like War or Peace or War and Peace or Anna Karenina and, <laughs> and if that's just not her thing. And she also goes as far as to say she doesn't actually trust anyone who says they read and loved Anna Karenina, especially the um, farming and agriculture and industrial parts. And I have to admit, I have not read that book, but I think it's good to kind of chat about this stuff and there shouldn't be guilt if you have or haven't read a certain book, I think. And I think the same goes with food and cooking. You know, Nigella, who we love, has a whole chapter in her latest book, Cook, Eat, Repeat, called Death to the Guilty Pleasure. And, you know, she argues that guilt should play no part in pleasure. So I think, yeah, same as food, as long as you're enjoying it and it's not harming yourself or others, then go for it. <laughs> That's my little yeah, about guilty pleasures. <laughs> I listened to um, that episode as well, actually, and um, I liked when Sarah was saying she loves books that are light and frothy on the surface, mm. but there's a lot simmering underneath. Yes. And I think, well, it's similar to what we were just talking about with books to be chatted about uh, rather than read, but actually it's the themes under the light and frothy surface that create the most thinking and conversation Mm. times. And um, I've often prescribed books that would be seen as light and frothy, but it's, it's just such an easy way to access some really big questions about the human condition, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're, if the characters are believable, which is what the pleasure is in reading those books that you whip through, isn't it? It's like mm. watching a great rom-com movie or, yeah. So I like the fact you've been able to link our reading and eating together. pleasure. <laughs> well, And it's so true, isn't it? That, is that a way to try and control us that, you know, make pleasures guilty, feel guilty about those summer readings so you stop reading at the end of summer like they wanted you to in 1888. Yeah, to get back to work maybe, <laughs> keep the cogs turning. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I don't know if I've ever felt guilty. I think I have described books in the past as guilty pleasures, but, yeah, when I think about actually how I felt reading them, I agree with you completely. It's just completely escapist and fun. And I I think also that was never talked about in my family like my grandmother was a huge lover of you know Jackie Collins and Judith Krantz and all those books with you know the gold letter writing on the (laughs) covers she used to let me read them when I was about 14 and that was a really great way to share something with her and bond with her I mean I don't remember ever discussing with her like the (laughs) the romance angle of the books but just the getting swept away in the multi-generational sagas type story or you know a complete knight in shining armor story and I I really um I devoured those books I mean yeah and a bit of a coming of age which is another interesting idea in itself isn't it that those romance novels and actually I read an article written by a doctor saying that there was a concern about romance novels in the same way there is about pornography in that they both create these completely unrealistic views of what relationships are I had thought about that before that you know you get brought up on a romance novel and swept up in this knight in shining armor idea or whatever but I think the difference is when you know you're enjoying a fantasy rather than reading it as a manual for living Mm. um I I think that's it's helpful if you're in that mindset to know this isn't the reason this is so enjoyable and escapist is because it's a fantasy Mm, I think so and I also think I mean like you I I in my early teens ripped through a lot of those big gold-lettered books and (laughs) lots of romance, but it never made me, I don't think it gave me unrealistic expectations. I mean, I certainly never hankered after my own Rupert Campbell Black. I guess it does kind of, (laughs) 
it gets, sets a certain bar. You know, it's good to have standards. <laughs> but of course we know that it's fiction and of course we know that this is a complete, mm. you know, it's a story. You know, I read Flowers in the Attic and certainly that was you know, <laughs> quite disturbing. But I think that, yeah, it's it's completely different, I think, to the porn industry, I hope. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other thing to unpack. <laughs> well, yes, it's a whole other way of thinking about well, you can't even say romance, but I guess it's still that idea of these are not manuals for how to live. No. But, uh, yes, Flowers in the Attic, mm-hmm. and I ripped through that as well. I mean, I think that helped foster a huge love of reading because you could just get so taken. And that was a book that went round the school year group and every girl was reading it and talking about it and trying not to let their mothers know they were reading it. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, again, a very a connecting um factor in reading those books that they are most enjoyed because they were giggled about and yes. shocked you know and actually when my grandmother died um I was 16 and I asked my grandfather if I could take her books and I still have them on my shelf my bookshelf in my bedroom so like two shelves worth of all that gold letter writing with all wow. those bent back spines because they were they like 800 pages long or something I've never reread them, but just seeing those spines every day when I go to bed, I, I think of her like Aww. it's almost like a photo album. So, yes, I definitely don't believe there's anything um, <laughs> trashy about any novel, depending on what what you relate them to. Yes, and, and actually, <laughs> coincidentally, in on Literary Hub a couple of weeks ago, there was this great article about an author who decided to spend a year reading only the romance genre Uh because she had never read the romance genre before. And she actually, again, makes the point about how that genre, of all genre fiction, that genre is the only kind of book one could read and somehow others would have a basis of considering you less intelligent for doing so, which is true, isn't it, compared to sci-fi or fantasy? Yep. There's something anti-intellectual about romance I I really don't understand that like you know it takes a great skill I think to write a a rom-com or a romantic book because not all of them are great like I've read a few that I've been tapped out after 50 pages and thought no I can't Mm. connect to this at all so it takes a skill to create these characters that we are genuinely invested in seeing them reach their happy ending like that's a real talent you know that that sort of opinion irks me (laughs) I don't like it. It does because I think it comes from this basis of most romance novels are written by women and read by women. And what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yet another example of uh, of that sexism. But she, the first one she picked up was Julia Quinn's The Duke and I, you know, the British Mm -hmm. author. And she wrote that she realised this perception could not be less relevant when you're busy having too much damn fun. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, as we said, pleasure. If it brings you pleasure. Absolutely. How's that a bad thing? Yeah, yeah. And um, because she spent this year reading all these different romance novels from that genre and she said they were so different and the themes were so different and the people were so different and the cultural context was so different that the only thing that the romance, the golden rule of romance novels are that they all have a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And actually there can be times when that's incredibly therapeutic and that's just if we go into those books knowing there's going to be a happy ending, um, that's a very, that can be a very safe and comforting place Mm. to be. And do you think that's why now it seems to be that, this genre is so popular, like, or potentially maybe it's just in my world and among myself and my friends, but, you know, the world is a really uncertain place at the moment and we've come through pandemics and there's all sorts of Mm. challenges thrown at us on every scale that by hopping into bed early with a cup of tea and a book that you know is going to give you a happy ending at this stage of my life, that's what I want. Maybe in 10 years I'll tackle Tolstoy I don't know (laughs) but right now um I think (laughs) potentially as you say like yeah there's such a comfort in that and comfort is a good thing we all need more of it I think (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I think it's a bit similar to how we've talked before about Jane Austen being mm. described to returning soldiers after the war, World War One, and that idea of there's not going to be any nasty surprises that and society will be running to its rules, which is so different in wartime. Mm. That's what you're saying too, isn't it? That there's just so much uncertainty and sadness and grief in the world to get into bed and know that you're going to, you know, there's going to be no sadness mm. or there might be a bit of heartbreak, but you know it's going to work out in the end. Yeah, It's a very comforting, calming place to be at this time. Mm-hmm. It's like recooking your favorite. That. And actually, no, you go, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's like re, you know, cooking a, a dish that fills the house with familiar smells and you know how it's going to taste and it's going to just have yeah. have a delicious resolution, you know. There's, there's, I mean, and it's not to say that I don't think yeah. it's good to stretch yourself and read things and cook different things, but, yeah, there's times for times for all of it, isn't there? Completely. Exactly. It's what you need at that time. I thought I just want to read you this quote from this article and see what you think of this. This is her final analysis on the whole romance genre. When so much critically acclaimed literature emphasises the most profound drudgeries of human existence, reading romance has liberated me from the misguided notion that suffering and meaning are interchangeable. I don't see romance as an escape, a way to soothe the anxious folds of my brain, but a vehicle that has allowed me to reconnect with a part of myself I felt close to burning out. Mm. And for me that I was really taken with that idea of reconnection of a part of self rather than just going, oh, it's escapist, Mm. but actually um, I love that. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. Yes, especially, you know, we're both women in our 40s, we've got teenage kids, it's nice to kind of you know, life's busy. It's nice to reconnect. I've got my 18 year wedding anniversary this Saturday night. And, you know, it is nice to kind of feel romantic again. And in fact, someone said once, and I can't remember where, that being a romantic is essentially just being an optimist, having optimism that things are going to work out Mm -hmm. in the end. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that I'm an optimist. And, you know, and I think that's why another reason why romance novels are popular, because they have this through line of hope that things are going to work out. People will look after mm. each other in the end. But I was thinking of books that have kind of reconnected part of myself that was burning out or just sort of ticked those boxes for me. And actually when I wrote I wrote this list for our chat today and a lot of them are like I've got a bit of a fantasy element, which is interesting. And a lot of them, are, I, I find I listen to more of these sorts of books than I actually read. I find them a good audio books. That's the sort of genre I generally reach for when I'm, I'm looking for a good audio book. But, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this because it's not trashy, but anyway, it's a fantasy book by, it's by Sarah J. Mask or Court of Thorns and Roses. And a friend of mine recommended it to me and I listened to all three on my Audible account and they're just just fun and takes you to a whole different, like literally a whole different place and good fun. Have you read any of those sorts of books? I'm not sure that's your genre. I don't know. Maybe it is. No, I haven't. I have seen, I know that author's name. I've seen those big posters around, but it. I've, I think I did just I mean just thought it was fantasy, but I mean, fantasy it is. is a genre I haven't really ever explored so that's combining fantasy and romance is it yeah I guess so I mean yes it definitely is and uh, you know I was reluctant to recommend it because I feel like there's probably going to be some eye rolling going on amongst our dear listeners it's just fun it's really fun it's a ripper of a story and there's a great kind of romance through it and it's a bit sexy and it's fun and and another kind of I've got two other fantasy-ish books with romance kind of a strong through line and it's Discovery of Witches, the trilogy by Deborah Harkness. And it's actually also a a TV series now. And it's another, just a really, I don't mind a bit of witchiness. It's a really, I don't know, it's a good story. There's a lot of history in there. They go back to Elizabethan England. My final one along those lines is Juno Dawson, who I love, who's an Irish writer, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which is a new book with a bright oh. pink cover. And I actually read that. I didn't listen to that. And it's a bit like, when I, I talked about it in my newsletter once, I said it's a bit like Marion Keys meets Deborah Harkness. It's very modern and fresh and fun, but right. it's about witches. So <laughs> whether that's your thing or not. Oh, it was set in. It's set in, in you, the UK sorry, right now when the, there's four main female characters or with their own storylines, but they are all witches. But they're living normal lives undercover. But it's just. Um, oh, great. A bit like. The, it's fun. 
Sorry, I was going to say a bit like the TV show Charmed, which I remember loving. Well, I never watched 90s. that actually. I've never, but yes, possibly. I feel like it's maybe a really grown up Harry Potter for the Harry Potter fans who are now a bit more grown up. Okay. It might be a bit fun like that. And Juno Dawson is a really great writer, and she's got her own side note, very funny podcast about Sex in the City, which I'll also link in the show notes. And it's very yeah. It's hysterical, actually. If you're a Sex and City fan, it's good fun. And my last romance book that I have really liked is Australian author Tess Wood's Beautiful Messy Love, and it's set in Perth, and there's quite a lot of sport in it, which is a bit of a different thing for me, but it's just a really fabulous Australian romance that I gobbled up. So they're mine. Right. <laughs> I haven't heard of that one either. You've, um, I'm curious about the Juno Dawson one. I do enjoy pictures. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> and it's funny because I'm not hugely into fantasy. Yeah, I I'm, think I you'd know like I'm it. Drawn to... And it's actually the good news as well okay, is it's no, the I'm first. It. It's the first of a trilogy, and the other two are incoming. They're not out yet, but you can't miss the cover. It's I've got it somewhere here. Anyway, it's hot, hot pink, and it's got this great um, logo on it. And it's right. It's just fun, you know. If if it's one of those books. Like I mentioned, I've mentioned before, Dolly Alderson's Ghost. Ghosts. It's just one of those books mm. that can kind of kick you up the bum if you're in a bit of a reading rush and get you going, which is good fun. Good because it's. I think it's also funny how um, you're saying I'm not sure if this is your style or whether you'd have <laughs> read these kinds of books because I was thinking, um, you know, I completely fell into the Twilight series. Ah, um, yes. Well, I didn't and- <laughs> And I remember when I was um, writing, reading the seasons with Sonia, she was quite shocked that we had Twilight in the book. <laughs> and I thought, well, no, this is the important thing about bibliothe- you know, using books as therapy is there is no, it's whatever works. And I have such fond memories of reading that series. And, it, again, it's helped by place and time, isn't it, mm-hmm. because I read that series on a trip we took to California well the kids were tiny like I think Lily was only five five three and one and um it was probably a real escapist journey from the you know full-on years of early motherhood but I remember we stayed at Sequoia National Park and all these deep you know the woods and all the trees and fallen logs and I had Lily in there playing in the woods and I was sitting I think on a tree stump reading it and suddenly remembering thinking, oh, God, like a vampire could be here somewhere. <laughs> like it just felt so atmospheric. And then we met up with friends in the Napa Valley and two of the women there were also reading the series and so then we swapped, you know, who was up to what book and I fondly remember sitting in a laundromat for four hours just lost in twilight like it made being at the laundromat very easy and straightforward and fun. And then the final book I bought at LA airport and read on the flight home. And so that holiday is so entwined with mm-hmm. <laughs> vampires and werewolves for me, but a complete break from the normal world. And, and the fun thing of thinking about, you know, like imagine if. Yeah. And look, I mean, naysayers would say they're complete rubbish or whatever, but if it, they did hold us all in this thrall and make it four hours at the laundromat fly mm. by. And I actually read one of them. I can't remember which one when I was being induced in hospital with Alice. And, you know, oh. I was, I think, in the early stages of labor and I was just reading this book and it really took me somewhere quite different. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's a skill, you know, no matter what you think about what's the name of it? Stephanie Wood? What's the name of the author of? Uh, yeah, uh, it's Maya. Maya, Stephanie Maya. Maya. The, the fact that she could make the early stages of labour and the discomfort of being induced kind of fade into the background, <laughs> you know, um, amazing. <laughs> That's a talent. <laughs> I'm definitely going to read Her Majesty's Royal Coven yeah. next, I think. I'd be interested to see what you think about it. Yeah, yeah. We've just been. We should move on to this summer, shouldn't we? Yes. Yeah, Do you want to go first? I can go first. Yes. I. This summer reading, the shape of this summer reading has been a bit different because I found I had stockpiled books from like October that I'd been desperate to read, but um, had been way too busy with work and study. So they were books that, like you say as well, 
I will read a book at any time of the year that I feel like reading. I don't usually save it as, oh, this is a summer read, but it just so happened I had this pile that I knew I wouldn't be able to get to or enjoy until summer. A consistent shape was um, Patricia Cornwell's latest case, Scarpetta novel, Vivid. And I just heard this on the podcast recently about Agatha Christie being very famously always associated with Christmas time in England and often read then. And apparently it was because her publishers decided you could publish a book each Christmas for people to read at Christmas time. Hmm. And Patricia Cornwell's publishers have obviously done the same thing. And it seems that she has a new book published towards the end of each year. And about 10 years ago, my father-in-law cottoned on to my loving Patricia Cornwell. And so every Christmas I get the next Patricia Cornwell from him and my mother-in-law. Yeah, which is lovely, actually. It's even, and it's, it's still anticipating, you know, it's fun to anticipate knowing I will be able to get that. And so Livid is the 26th book of the K Scarpetta series. (gasps) And, you know, and so Oh, for anyone who hasn't ever read them, I actually—I don't think you've read. No, I haven't before. Have no, you? I yeah. should, but not yet. I mean, oh no, there's no should. <laughs> yes, true, true, true. <laughs> but she's um, all those books revolve around Kay Scarpetta, who's a medical chief medical examiner, and then she's married to Benton, who's an FBI profiler. She works closely with an ex policeman, Pete Marino, and she has this genius niece who's this IT expert and now works in Secret Service called Lucy. So every book has those characters in it. And I think it's the familiarity of knowing what you're going to get, mm. which is so comforting at that time of year. That and I actually heard Patricia interviewed recently on a podcast, which I'll find and put in the show notes. But she was saying that she has no idea how old Kay Scarpetta is, which it made me laugh because I realised that I just always see her in her early 50s, but she's been in her early 50s for 26 <laughs> years now. Like no one ages. And there's something I quite like that. Really, yeah, there's something, it, it's a constant, isn't it? No, And her marriage is always stable and, yes, she nearly gets killed by the murderer in every episode, but episode, I mean every book, but you know that, They'll catch the killer and she and her family will be fine and she'll go home and make everyone um, a delicious pasta and garlic bread. So actually you might enjoy that series because she's she de-stresses from her gruesome days by cooking yeah. Italian food. Yeah. And actually Patricia Cornwell um, published the Hey Scarpetta cookbook oh, years ago and she was so well known for the way she wrote about food. Oh, um, wow. So, yes, it never changes and there's something really comforting in that and I, it never changes that in that I always start reading it on Boxing Day. So the last thing on Patricia, she in this particular book, she has she starts it off with a quote from Leonardo da Vinci and it reminded me of what we always talk about in this podcast, which is develop your senses, realise everything connects to everything else. I like that. Yeah, just that whole mm. mindfulness piece we talk about a lot with cooking and we're reading too, yeah. Oh, well, I'm definitely, I think you've got me over the line with the, with the Patricia Cornwall. I might not wait till next Boxing Day, though. I might get into it earlier. But I wonder if they'd be good to listen to because I've got a lot of driving coming up. They might be a good audiobook series to listen to. Mm. Um, I was going to say, yeah, she might be good to listen to. It's like watching a movie yeah. in a way. Yep. So I think it, it translates really well to audio. Okay. And you don't need to start at the very beginning. Okay. I mean, Every book could be seen as standalone. It's just that you get more of a character development. Sure. But you could pick it up from wherever you want to. Okay. Oh, well, I will, I'll check that out. So the book that I have read that has had, the, I guess, the biggest shape on me this month is another book that is all over my Instagram. Um, I was given it to, for Christmas, Catherine Newman's We All Want Impossible Things um, mm. with that fabulous yellow cover and there's a piece of cake on it. Um, you yep, haven't I've read that yet, have too. you? Yeah. Jermaine. Yeah, no, because I remember also after Christmas you sent a picture of it to me saying this looks really good and and I fell into the trap of knowing that it's about two friends in their 40s and one of them is dying and I mm-hmm. thought, oh, I don't think I want to read about death. Mm. I think you're about to tell me that yeah. it's not sad. I mean, it is. Cool. It's definitely a weepathon. Like I, I wept and wept. 
you know, in theory, it should be a massive downer because it is, it's essentially set in a hospice and it's a story of Eddie um, and Ash, these two friends, and one of them is dying. But actually, it really is a very beautiful celebration of friendship and living and the power of food and cooking for each other to, you know, part the clouds and, and make you feel together. Um, I have described it as a modern beaches but with cake and that kind of drew me right in because I love cake <laughs> and I did love beaches. And it definitely <laughs> makes you feel like laughing and weeping in equal measure. But it's just, I mean, it's all over my Instagram account. Everyone's talking about it. And for good reason. It's a really good, beautifully written, sharp, mm. funny, sad book that I, I definitely recommend. I loved it and I, I read it quite quickly and and I felt all the feelings, you know, like books don't often actually make me weep. It takes a lot to get that happening. But it but it was really, really good. I loved it. And um I would I would definitely recommend that. The other summer book I've been reading a lot is well, just finished this morning actually, is Tom Eagle, who's a British chef, a book called Summer Lease, and it's all about cooking without heat. So it's it looks like a novel, it reads like a novel, there are no pictures, there's a few recipes. It, it's really interesting to me this idea of he really goes into the history of salting and curing and brining our foods. And I'm writing a cookbook at the moment about the summer chapter about um, portable food for parties. And so I'm really interested in foods that won't kill us mm. if they're left in the sun for a little bit. So it's if you really like that kind of food writing that that takes a whole chapter to discuss one recipe and they really dig into the, the history of a particular process or ingredient, right. um, he writes beautifully. I, I highly recommend it. And I always also find when, you know, reading a whole chunk of books over summer that there's always a surprise read that sort of stands out that I, I didn't plan to read or I particularly fell in love with. And that for me this year was a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that. I saw you um, post it on your Instagram. It's a great cover. looks like a very mm, cool it, book. It is a bit of a psychedelic Yeah. Cover. Yeah, right. It's a book I bought for Louis to try and get him off gaming and into reading again <laughs> because, you know, it's about um, these two friends who are gamers and they come up with this, you know, amazingly successful video game. Anyway, it didn't work for my 14-year-old. Well, as in, I don't think he's actually opened the cover. I had also heard a lot of stuff around this book and I think I'd read a review that said you don't need to be into gaming to enjoy it and I just picked it up and thought I'm going to see what this is all about and I read it within a well not in two sittings but like a, a couple of days like I really zoomed through it it's, it's about these two friends they first meet in hospital Sadie's visiting her sister who's very sick and Sam is in hospital with a seriously damaged foot after a horrific car accident and they become friends by playing Nintendo together in the 80s, this is. And then it moves into their, when they're in their 20s and she's she develops games. He's an artist and he does it. So they come together and partner and make these amazing worlds. But it's actually a really fascinating look at friendship and creativity and partnerships in different ways and also what happens when you can control a make-believe world and how that's really different in the real world and how you can connect through the make-believe and how you can disconnect in the real world. And and it, it made me smile as well because in that couple of episodes ago I complained that there aren't enough books written about friendship or interesting enough books written about friendship. I sort of felt that fate had delivered me an answer to, you know, a great story about friendship, okay. the trials and tribulations of friendship, the celebration as well as the, the ruptures. Oh, great. Um, what about you? Well, I'm interested in that because I don't know anything about the world of gaming and maybe it's probably a good thing to sort of understand if not involve yourself in if mm. gaming is not anything. But So my surprise read was a funny book called Isaac and the Egg um, that mum gave me for Christmas. And I have to admit, it took me a little while to get into the world of Isaac and his little E.T.-like grief companion egg but it was really really actually quite beautiful and another story about grief so three of the books I read this month have had grief as a bit of a central theme which is an interesting way to start the year but it's just how it worked out so it's essentially about this this man Isaac who is has lost his wife in a a car accident and he is just 
in the throes of deepest, deepest, darkest grief. And he comes across this creature. It's really hard to explain who's like an alien. Is this a two foot tall, white oval, egg shaped with a lemon for a face and feather boas for arms. I'm not sure whether actually Egg, who Isaac imaginatively calls this creature Egg because he looks like an egg, I'm not sure if Egg is even real Mm. or a figure of his imagination. Isaac's late wife was an illustrator and whether or not he just sort of conjured this up to help him process what he's going through. But I really loved how our protagonist, Isaac, he learns to care for himself and Egg, even if it's just through cooking baked beans for himself and watching old movies every night. It's really interesting and, as I said, it took me a while to get into, but the typography is really interesting. It's quite playful and it's just right. a really sweet, playful, funny but sad book. So might not be for everyone but I'm I'm glad I read it, which is always a good thing in the end. You know, I, I did think after about mm. 80 pages, I was like, well, I'm not sure I'm going to con- continue with this, but I'm very glad I did because it gave me a lot to think about and it's just quite different to the kind of books I normally right. read. So, yeah, I would I would say, yes, it's, it is a good book. It, it's not my normal fare. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a little bit fable-like. It is, you know. actually. It, just, it, it makes is. me think of grief. Okay. It is It is quite fable-like. It makes me think of Max Porter's Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Um, yeah. I don't know if you ever read that. I haven't, yeah. but I know the one you mean. Where there's a crow that kind of comes and takes care of the family, but mm. is it? a crow or is it yeah it's it's very fable like again it's like this other thing that helps deal with with huge grief yeah well oh, I'd be interested to read I'll lend it, it to you I'll lend it to you I think you'll like it I think you'll like it and it's um I haven't got it in front of me I can't remember the author but it's his debut novel and like I think for the first novel it's kind of a staggering piece of work like it's really I think right. be- beautifully written and taps into a lot of emotion. And I-, I can only assume that the author has been through something like that to write about it on that mm-hmm. level. Yeah, so that's my surprise read for the summer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Both end, our surprises have both been genres or topics that we wouldn't usually choose to read about or think yeah. about picking up. Yeah, no romances for me this summer, unfortunately. <laughs> that can be my next one. <laughs> Enough of grief for the moment, thank you. <laughs> I know it's it's very unlike our Christmas episode where um all your books are on the upward uh yeah. optimistic swing. Yeah, although I would say that Catherine Newman's it. book oh, We All Want Impossible Things is actually fun. And both actually Isaac and the Egg is ends on an optimistic note in the sense of life goes on. We're going to be right. okay. We're going to move through this thing and we're going to live as best we can with what, with the time that we have. I feel like that was the big uh-huh. message actually in both of those books but in different ways. So that's optimistic. Right, anyway. okay. Definitely. No, hmm. definitely. And um, disappointment reads, and I really want to know what you think from, about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say going from optimism to um, disappointment. <laughs> well, I thought, you know, if we have a, a surprise great read, we can't not have a book that felt, didn't quite hit the spot for us Mm. at this time of year I was thinking and for me and I wonder if this is also why it fell short because I had high expectations because this was the sequel to Andrew Sean Greer's Less Mm -hmm. his latest and Less which won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago and again was very was sort of uh, very sharp and witty and I really enjoyed it and uh, his follow-up book Less is Lost bought it and thought I will save it actually or I'm fine to save it for summertime because it will feel like armchair travel because it's all about Arthur Less traveling on a road trip through across the south of America in a camper van and he's a moderately successful author as they say in the book and he goes to all these literary events but his personal life is quite messy and in this book Less is Lost he's ex-partner, ex-boyfriend has died and that's when he decides that he's going to, oh, there's other reasons why he has to take this tour because he needs money, but he also likes to run away and numb himself from any kind of problems in his life or grief. And the book's narrated by his current partner, Freddie. I just didn't feel that I got to know Arthur. I guess I didn't feel I got to know Arthur any more than I did in the Mm -hmm. first book. You know, like in any, there's always um, good parts of 
books too. And I just wanted to share this quote that I just thought was so insightful. And so, yes, yeah, so Freddie narrates the whole story and he's recalling when he first met Arthur's old lover, Robert, who just died. And he says, writes, when the party was over and I was cleaning up with less and swooning with sugared gin and champagne, he asked me what I thought of Robert. I was too young to know what I thought of Robert. I only knew what I thought of myself, which was that I felt conquered. We argued and he broke a glass and wept over it and I stood there holding my own cocktail of triumph and shame. And I just really I love that insight into human nature and that reminder that, you know, when we can really take a dislike to someone, it could have everything to do with mm-hmm. where we're at and ourselves and not much to do with the other person. Mm. I've, that quote's been in my head a lot. But overall, I just, yeah, I felt like I didn't get to know Arthur less anymore in this book. I do love that sentiment and that what you picked out of that is that, you know, when the way we feel about people often, as you say, is informed by how we're feeling about ourselves. And I'm often saying that to my kids, you know, if anyone's not kind to them at school or whatever, it's saying more about what's going on with mm. them than you. And I, I had a not a very nice... Mm direct message on on my Instagram the other day about my appearance and it really upset me and I my daughter actually said mom says more about what she's thinking about herself and I was like yes you're right thank you for reminding me of that you know so it's just a good thing we should all remember that all the time so thank you for that little reminder but I'm actually halfway through less is lost myself and I didn't read the first one Mm -hmm. um I never read less but I was on this houseboat and it was there and I um, my friend had it and I started reading it and so I'm actually enjoying it but I have nothing to compare it to like and and as a standalone book I mean I don't think I don't think I'm I've lost too much by not having read the first one but I think his writing no you haven't no so sharp and in fact David Sedaris writes a an endorsement on the cover of the copy I've got and actually reminds me of his writing that really razor sharp wit I'm enjoying. So I'm, as I said, though, I'm only halfway through. My, It's not exactly a disappointment, but Seeing Other People, which is a book that you recommended to me by Diana Reid, which mm. I've read and I really liked it. I really did enjoy it. And I think she's a great writer. And I loved that it was set in a part of Sydney where I spent my 20s mostly, or a lot of my 20s. That's mm-hmm. the eastern suburbs of Sydney around those beaches Clovelly Beach where they go to I used to go to quite a lot I loved that it was set in January in summer which was when I read it but I didn't love Mm. all the characters like I found it hard to really latch on to either sister or and and really empathize with them I mean I wanted them all to have a happy ending no doubt about that but I I just no I didn't love them um there was something about I don't know but what it got me thinking about was that uh, with books, if I don't really latch onto a character and, and want to propel them forward to the happy ending, I find that I don't enjoy it as much as whether I've got a, a character who I'm really mm. rooting for. But it's different with TV. And, in fact, that's the problem I had with Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads. Have you read that, Jermaine? That was my last summer read. No, I haven't read Crossroads. Um, I mean, it's an amazing work and he's an amazing writer, et cetera, but I didn't really love any of the characters that much. So I, mm. I've found it more of a slog. But with TV, it's not such a problem for me. Like Succession, which is one of my favourite shows of all time, they're all dreadful characters, yep. yet I love it. And White Lotus Series 2, which I've just been watching, again, not great people, but completely watchable so I wanted to know what your thoughts about that is do you need to be enamored with at least one of the characters in a book to really enjoy it or it doesn't worry you so much there's yes it's a whole thing about unlikable characters they need to have something in them that creates some form of compassion Mm. or some form of insight in you to be able to see they're flawed but I still care what happens to them. If the writer doesn't manage to convey something that, that some compassion in the reader, I agree. Like it's really hard to care mm. enough. And I wonder, because I agree, it was success, I love succession as well. And at first I hated it because I hated all the characters. <laughs> Acting and the writing mm. is so good that no matter how awful they are, they're human and you start being shown their vulnerabilities and kind of get more context around how they've become the way they are, then the compassion flows and you can still not like them or uh, like what they're doing, but that understanding makes you want to care Mm. for whether they can change. 
another I had lunch with a friend a couple of weeks ago and she's also was reading seeing other people after I'd recommended it and she was like oh I'm not really liking the people I just don't care enough about either sister and and I I agree that they're both very unlikable in their own ways but they managed to inspire some kind of compassion in me with a bit of insight that made me want to know or how it would end up but I can completely also understand why that compassion may have been lacking as well I feel a bit tough now I mean I I genuinely enjoyed the book like I and I would recommend it like I thought it was a great read and I potentially if I was reading it in my 20s in a different space I think I'm possibly mm. being a bit tough on those sisters because they they were not bad people. They were good people. They were just flawed and going through things in our tw- in their twenties, which you do, but you know, riddled with insecurities and as as you are in your twenties. Yeah. It just got me thinking about that idea of empathy with characters and whether you need that connection. Yeah, no, and I don't think you're being I don't think you're being tough on them either. And I, I think it's interesting as you say. I thought that too. This is not an general. You know, this is not an age group. I'm that familiar with or and my friend who was reading it reminded me that too she said I don't know I'm reading it thinking is this what my daughter's life is like in her 20s (laughs) because there is a lot of drug taking and a lot of it does feel a whole different way of living Mm. life Mm. and I think I saw that as oh this is interesting to observe this Mm. world I don't really know anything about and that age group and what they're going through at this time rather than be able to fully relate and want to be friends with them I certainly didn't want to be friends with them or be part of their world I think I related more to the mum at the end of the book than anyone else I probably had my most empathy for the mum she was quite wise in the end she was she was but I did think of that time thing the other another book I really loved this holiday that I didn't know much about and was really pleasantly surprised was um They're Going to Love You by Meg Howery Mm -hmm. and it's a book, and I, I'm bringing this up now because I think it's it's set. Uh, so it's about a, a family of ballet dancers, but the main character is the daughter, and so it's split between her being a child and teenager in the 1980s, and then the current present day where her father's dying, and they haven't spoken for 19 years, and that's the gap of time oh. in the book. And you wonder, oh, what happened that caused that rupture? Her experience in the 80s of she's living with her father and his partner in New York and the, the, it's right in the middle of the whole AIDS epidemic and and so there's a lot in there around how that really affected homosexual men at that time and how they coped with the impact of all that grief and loss and it brought up a lot with, you know, the pandemic as well, mm. that living through this fearful time but also it reminded me that the stigma and the horror of what, you know, the gay community had to go through. Mm-hmm. It's really well written about there. Her concerns of being a te- because I could remember that time and relate to her age and her childhood, I found I really liked her very quickly and it made me think about seeing other people and I wondered if part of the problem with those characters, I felt very much like I was just observing from afar mm. as opposed to really getting in there and caring mm-hmm. and actually I wonder if that was to do with I couldn't relate to their 20s because I have not in my 20s in 2020s like they are. So, yeah, I wonder if that can sometimes be a bit of a a wall to really getting into a book too. Mm. Yeah, potentially. And, yes, but even the one you were talking about before about gaming, I think I'd like to read that because I want to understand more about that. And I, in 10 years, I'll have a daughter who's 25 and it will probably be different again and Instagram won't be such a big thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I guess it's a good way to kind of get an insight into a different existence. I think maybe we should move on to our letter now so we yes. hold everyone up for too long. But shall I read it and then you can kick off with your prescription? Um, Sounds good. Hi, Jermaine and Sophie. I meant to send this email weeks ago, but it sat in my draft box. I wasn't quite sure what I needed. I realize this is now very last minute, but if there is a book slash recipe recommendation for when someone is in knots and worried about making the right decision, I'd really appreciate it. My son is due to start a new high school next year, or this year now, and I'm beside myself with worry. I normally turn to Rosamond Pilcher to soothe the nerves, but is there, if there is anything you could recommend, I'd really appreciate it. 
Thank you all for the joy you have provided your listeners this year. I'm a high school teacher librarian and consider myself pretty knowledgeable on all things books, but you always provide such interesting and thought-provoking reads. Thank you. Well, thank you. Oh, this is a this means a lot to me, this letter as well, um, which we'll get into. But I'd love to hear your prescription first, Jermaine. Mm. All new years bring their own new starts don't they but and, and maybe that's why summer can sometimes feel so tiring mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you know you're recovering from the year that was and then suddenly you have to get prepared for all these changes and I think when you've got children each new year you can't avoid the change because they're going into a whole new year of school they're kind of progressing right in front of your mm-hmm. face aren't they and then the choice of those huge transitions of starting high school and the choice of school and it is overwhelming. I think it is really hard to, and wanting to kind of have a crystal ball where, you know, you've made like the right decision and um, which of course is impossible. And I think the only way you can handle that is by realizing that you've made the best decision you could with all the information you have at that time. And Mm. if that information changes, then you respond to those changes at that time. But for now, this is the, the decision that makes the most sense mm. maybe. But thinking back to that crystal ball idea made me think that of, of my book uh, prescription where it would be lovely to know all the different paths and actually how they'd work out and then be able to choose the right one, which we can't do in real mm. life, but we can do in a book. <laughs> and so I've chosen a novel called um, Versions of Us. It's by Laura Barnett. It's a book that's broken into three parts and on the surface it could be seen as three different stories about this couple, Eva and Jim. And in each story there's a slightly altered way that they've in how they've met Mm. and that beginning has set them on completely different paths throughout the novel. And then it looks at, you know, this idea of chance and destiny and how society's attitudes and, and culture will always play a part in our choices but it looks beyond this being a romance and also looks at how partners can influence us and circumstances in our careers can influence us. And and I think for me when I read it, my biggest surprise was realising that the path I thought was the best path perhaps didn't turn out to be the best path. It just sort of made me feel a bit more okay with uncertainty at the start of big changes that yep that you don't necessarily know where it will lead. And I hope that offers a bit of solace for our letter writer as she Mm. embarks on this big change. Oh, I love that. I think I need to read that book as well. It sounds sounds great. The versions of us. Okay, I'm going to read that one. So, yes, Mm. to our letter writer, I empathise. My daughter is starting a new school in weeks now as well. I mean, she's going four hours away. She's boarding and I am in knots as well with worry and Mm. something like grief that she's going to be so far away and potentially might might never come back full-time under our roof you know because then she'll be off and uh, studying or traveling or working whatever and you know we're four hours from Sydney so I understand what you're saying and for me when I feel like that it's cooking something familiar or reading something familiar that helps and I was thinking of what I will, would slash will cook this weekend when I'm starting to kind of, we're on the countdown for her going away, that mm. nourishes, you know, yourself but also your children and, you know, bolsters them and, and fills them with your love. You know, I always think of when I'm cooking like this, I think of that Adele song, which is one of my, her, my favourite of her songs, is Make Me Feel Your Love and it's like I want this meal to make you mm. feel my love. So something that's comforting <laughs> to cook that also importantly to me makes the house smell that way you know that's sort of a memory smell is such a memory a familiar and delicious sense that everyone's gonna love so for me it has to be a roast chicken a classic roast chicken smothered in like I do it with a tarragon and lemon butter and then it's just this golden delicious beautiful thing and all I serve it with is a really good green salad I always remember uh, I think it's Alice Waters said Alice Waters from Shape and East you can always tell the quality of a restaurant by the green salad they serve and I think that so many of us just sort of like oh. chuck a bag of greens in a bowl and that's done but you know wash it and assemble it and dress it with care and that's all you need and then for my Alice her favorite garlic bread a really good homemade garlic bread with the chicken and the salad. <laughs> to me that's like a really beautiful meal that will make the house smell amazing that's not hard to cook at all but 
gives you that result. And for dessert, um, we have a mulberry tree I'm looking at right now that's just in full flight. So I think mulberry jelly with softly whipped cream. I think to me jelly is like such a childhood nostalgia thing. Like I, my favourite dessert Mm. is jelly and ice cream, but that all mash up and my kids love it too and it's light for this time of year. So roast chicken salad, garlic bread, jelly and cream, and I think that's a pretty perfect summer dinner. It's not tricky and it's not heavy but it feels kind of optimistic and full of love. So I'm going to put the recipe in the show notes for all of those things. <laughs> oh, lovely. And homely. Yeah, homely. I, I love that. Yeah, make sure at home. Yeah, safe. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, before we send our babies off into the unknown. <gasps> so on that note, yeah. I'll go and have another cry, but um, <laughs> um, I think we might have come to the end of our summer reading episode which has gone on a little bit but I hope that everyone's got some wonderful recommendations things to cook and read from this one I certainly have yes and we'll be we'll be back in February with our first episode of the year back to our usual format of talking about one book and one letter and we've had so many messages from people talking about the Gentleman in Moscow mm. by Emil Tells. That's the book where finally, because neither you nor I had read it, and it's just I think of all the messages we've received, that's yeah. been the most common book mentioned, hasn't it? it so I'm really I bought my copy last week. Well, I'm about and I'm really nine hours into listening to it, and I'm going. I've got a copy as well, actually. Mum lent me her <sighs> copy, but I'm really enjoying listening to it. Actually, it's really well read and. We've been doing a lot of driving and I've had it on in my ears while the kids are doing listening to their things. And it's it's good. I'm I'm enjoying it. I, I understand why everyone loves it so much. So I'm really looking forward to chatting about that next month. Great. Well, looking forward to to it as well. So until then, yes. we'll um we'll, we'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, and happy reading and happy cooking, everybody. And yeah, just to everyone facing a new school year and changes or whatever. Um, we're all in it together and It'll be what it will be, but I think all we can do is make our best decisions with what we have <laughs> at, at the time. As you said, with your books about grief, that the uplifting message you were left with was um, life always goes on. Yes, it does. Thank you. And thank you also to our wonderful producer, Christy Reading, for putting these episodes together for us. We will see you or we will be in your ears in a few weeks' time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jermaine. Thanks, Sophie. See you soon. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a Small town woman Trying to find my way In a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl I'm just a Small town woman Trying to walk a straight line In a crooked world
I want to take up drinking, self-medicate you right off of my mind. Or maybe I could take some morphine. God knows it's pain relief I need. It works better than waiting for some holy sign. But I ain't a medicating girl. I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world. And I ain't a morphine mama. I'm just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. I'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world.